are live. Welcome to another episode of the New York Information Security Meetup. And I have the great pleasure to introduce Alexander Orbelis. Uh, Alex, uh, I was disappointed because uh, I was hoping to see the handlebar mustache. So maybe we can touch upon, <laughs> first and foremost, where yes. is it? Where is it going? Oh, that, you know, that uh, you are not alone in that disappointment, let me tell you, because it's uh, <laughs> it's something I hear all the time. You appear in a Zoom and the first thing people are staring at are uh, is my mustache, you know, and, and asking me where what happened. Well, I have to say, uh, I do hope that the mustache will make a, another appearance and that the, the beard will be gone as soon as we have uh, no more mask mandates. So I will tell you that uh, having to wear a, a face mask is like murder to a handlebar mustache. It just it doesn't work. I mean, it it, it makes them sad. It makes them droopy. Did, did you uh, try to poke? Much. You should have poked like so holes in the mask so that at least I have <laughs> yeah. the mustache coming out of it. I never thought of that actually. Yeah, that would be. Custom. I wonder if that would be a health issue. But um, you know, the it's a it's a really good idea, as a matter of fact. Yeah, do a custom one. You know, that's a business idea to sell like these masks, custom made masks <laughs> for everyone with a uh, handlebar mustache. Absolutely. Uh, so, Alexander, I I wanted to have you on the show because you have an unbelievable track record and legal uh kind of legal slash cybersecurity career you've been doing this for a while and your experience is like i would say top notch from like anybody that i've seen in this legal industry um and there are not that many folks that are entrenched in kind of both discipline which i think is um you know it's one of the kind of the i think the really big need in the industry right now is people that understand both domains so why don't we get started and just kind of a uh, Give us a quick uh, overview of uh, how you got to where you are. You're a senior partner today at a legal firm. Um, maybe just give us kind of a, you know, how you started, you know, how did you got even to the role? Even You were a CISO at one point in time as well, That's right. uh, which is tremendously uh, valuable to have that experience. So why don't we get started with kind of a, a quick overview of how, uh, how you progress to, uh, yeah. to where you are today. I, I, absolutely. I mean, and, and this story starts, you know, really 25 years ago or so and, and sort of ends with me being senior counsel over at uh, with, with Kroll and Mooring. I, I joined Kroll and Mooring about uh, five or six months ago uh, in the middle of but uh, really the story starts when I was a, a teenager, a kid, and I think for a, a, in, in a very large part, my legal career has been propelled by my misspent youth in that, uh, you know, I, I really I started out running around with the uh, 2600 crew in, in New York City, uh, which was, you know, the, the local hackers and started out as a hacker. And that's how I got my foray into computer security. And then all through college, uh, I went to Stony Brook University. Back then, it was known as the State University of New York at Stony Brook. And I majored in philosophy, but I had worked full time and went to school full time uh, uh, working at a software company. And uh, that was where I, I was really working in the IT department and then dealing with some of the early stages of computer security and information security as we know it today, uh, even way back then, starting in, in about 1995. And so uh, from from Alex, college, a, oh, a go quick, ahead. A quick question for you, like, because before we, before I forget, talk to me about the 2600. How did you stumble upon it? That's that's so cool because a lot of people are not aware of, of that community in how you know back in the day i mean it was like they go to you know without the youtube without all these forums and everything else i mean that was where people uh you know like-minded individuals that were wanted to kind of break some of the rules and break the you know you know the envelope 
that's where they went to. So I mean, talk to me about the 2600 and how they got involved. Sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to. And I'll tell you, I mean, I still am part of 2600 and, and write for 2600 to to this day. And uh, uh, and in fact, on Monday, I was hanging out with uh, Emmanuel Goldstein and, and we went over to St. John's University, the situs of the HOPE conference that's coming up, the Hackers on Planet Earth conference for that will hopefully be happening in person in New York this summer. But uh, yeah, that's really where it all started. So I I actually was reading about 2600 and freaking and and the old magazine, the old digital magazine Frack, which is still in existence today as well. But uh, I remember reading this in Bruce Sterling's book, The Hacker Crackdown. And I used to live out uh, on Long Island where I went to high school. And I would tell my mother that I was up to one thing or another after school. And then uh, a couple of other friends of mine and I, we would take the bus to the closest train station for the Long Island Railroad, take the Long Island Railroad into the city, take the subway up to 53rd and Lex. And on the first Friday of every month in the lobby of the Citigroup building at five o'clock is where all the hackers got together and where all the hackers met. And that's where I really... Uh, got my start in all of this, which was hanging out with the local hacker crew. <laughs> Did uh, your mom know what you were doing at the time? Because that's not, not, necessarily. not exactly that's <laughs> yeah. an extracurricular activity that is not necessarily absolutely um, you know <laughs> no it was it wasn't on the uh, on the school's agenda i wasn't getting any extra credit for that one but i probably should have because I, I will tell you it really is the those connections and that and the sharing of knowledge and the mentality of the hacker culture back then has persisted within me i think to this day and it really is um uh, i think has been a driving force in my career uh, and what's very weird too is I, i'll tell you you know a lot of the tricks and the tools and and things that i learned back when I was uh, a teenage hacker, you know, things about Linux system administration, you know, regular expressions, you know, how to use grep, all, you know, all the, all the sort of command line tools of the, of the trade back then are still incredibly and, and very highly relevant today. Yes. And it's not just that you're hundred percent correct. It's not just that though. It's the mindset. Of, Ab absolutely. Right. It's the mindset absolutely. looking at, at things from a certain angle as how can we break these? Uh, that's something that uh, you carry forward. I always say, you know, even when you when you take a, a four year degree or whatever, you not necessarily the, the the volume of knowledge is not necessarily the the most valuable piece. The most valuable piece is how to acquire that knowledge and that mindset. Uh, so that goes goes without saying that goes for for the twenty six hundred and what you did back then as well. It it really does, and it and it's it's about breaking things, figuring out you know where the where the vulnerabilities in the system are, understanding that system, not being afraid to take something apart, uh, just in case you you, know, you can't get it back together again. It's more important to learn how something works than to actually I would say have it work continuously and systematically. But so taking things apart, asking questions, and then figuring the, the these very difficult issues out. And sharing that knowledge, you know, sharing that knowledge is something I think that's incredibly important to me, and and also uh, something I've carried with me through throughout my career is that you know, we we have to be uh, working on this, in, especially in cybersecurity. We're all in this together these days, and if we don't share knowledge, if we don't share intelligence about threat actors, we're going to be, you know, up up you know whose creek without a paddle. But so I, I completely agree with you, you know, and the, the twenty six hundred crew is is still near uh, and dear to my heart and uh, and I think very relevant and important because the next crop and the next generation of hackers and information security professionals I hope will continue to have this 
this mindset almost, and I don't mean this in a pejorative sense, but a, in a, a childlike attitude towards the world where we have this curiosity where we're not afraid to ask questions and asking questions doesn't get you penalized or stigmatized. And, uh, and again, it's all about uh, sharing that knowledge. So, you know, being, being a young teenage hacker also on the other hand had given me uh, the, the intellectual confidence, I think, to do well in school, you know, up until that point, I was a fairly standard mediocre student, you know, B's and A's, a couple of, you know, AP classes and things like that, but never really excelled because I didn't think I had the confidence in myself to excel. But, you know, what we call in the, uh, in the legal profession is an a fortiori argument or something, uh, or, or by necessary implication, uh, arguing by necessary implication. I remember thinking to myself in high school, well, if I can hack Unix systems and program and see and do all of these complicated things and understand technologies that my social studies teachers and math teachers can't understand, then, you know, by necessary implication or a fortiori, there's really no reason why I shouldn't be getting straight A's in school. You know, because, uh, you know, I am by far I, the smartest person in the room. I love right? it. I absolutely love it. <laughs> you, I, know? you know, this it's tremendous feedback. I mean, it's it's amazing. You're right. And, you know, part of getting uh, gaining confidence as, you know, as a younger adult um, is uh, is doing things that are tough. You know, and then you gain confidence from from doing that. And that's why it's, you know, you were breaking things that not necessarily were trivial to the common folks and you gained confidence in, in to, to do other things and become successful some in other areas of your life. Yeah, that, sure. that, that's exactly right. And then, you know, and, and I maintain this attitude uh, and, and this level of confidence about myself and within myself, you know, all through college. And, uh, and that was also, you know, it was, it was a little bit difficult for me. I was raised in a, a single parent household and, you know, money was very, very tough. I had to stay home uh, locally and, and work full time and, and help, with the family. And, uh, you know, it's this crazy system where, um, you have, uh, I, I, because I was working and making a decent amount of money, I wasn't rich by any means and it was difficult to pay tuition, but, uh, because I was working, I became ineligible to receive financial aid from the state, despite the fact that we, you know, we're, we're you know, really growing up in what, what some would consider to be very kind of poverty like conditions and things. And so, uh, but it was tough and I maintained this and I got through college and I was a philosophy major. I knew I was going to go to law school. Um, and that was one of the reasons why I studied philosophy. And um, so I did philosophy and English and classics and um, and classics. So I thought why, was very important. Why law school? What what, uh, you know, attracted you to, to this particular profession? Well, it was a, a, a number of things, you know, it was being part of the hacker culture and, and seeing how laws uh, were frustrating the evolution of technology and how legislators and lawyers and judges and, and, and anybody in the legal profession didn't really understand how technology worked. And I realized that there needed to be uh, people who were lawyers that understood fundamentally how technology works and fundamentally uh, about cybersecurity, information security, and 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 about the hacker culture. And so I'd seen a lot of people get into uh, trouble and go into issues, you know, people like Bernie S. way back in the day and fiber optics is still a, a, a very good friend of mine as well. And a lot of people from this 2600 crew and uh, and and also pivotal, I think, to my decision to go to law school was the DECSS trial or the DCS, the D content scrambling system trial where 2600 magazine was involved with 
it, it was involved in litigation with the Motion Picture Association of America for publishing source code on their website and then within the magazine uh, about how to decrypt the content scrambling system on DVDs, which, you know, as I understand it, you know, used a very, very small encryption key, something that could be very, very easily cracked. And it was a, a Norwegian teenager. I think it was somebody who was 14 or 15 years old that had put together and, and developed the source code to crack the, uh, the crack CSS and, uh, and created DCSS. And so seeing that litigation unfold in the Southern District of New York uh, with uh, the Electronic Frontier Foundation uh, and with, I think it was Frankfurt Garbus Klein and Sells and Marty Garbus, who was a, a, a preeminent First Amendment attorney at the time, uh, was very instrumental to me in, in making that decision to go to law school. And it's so cool. But how old were you when you, I mean, this is most people would just glance over it, you know, with googly <laughs> eyes. Yeah. What you just describe. I mean, it's, I mean, it's so cool. Like the fact that, you know, you were following that case. Oh, yeah. Oh, I know. was in the courtroom. I was in the courtroom. No I was way. in the lawyer's office. Yeah, how I was. Were you? Yeah, I was. God, I had to be 19. That is incredible. 19 or 20. Yeah, so incredible. That's yeah, a, it was it's a it level was awesome. of curiosity that is beyond. And I mean, it's just really incredible. And what's interesting about all this that you preempted, you know, this case and and a few others that came afterwards, you know, it was you were way ahead of of the time in, in understanding that there is intersection between technology and legal and cybersecurity and legal. And then you decided to, to pursue a legal degree and pursue the legal profession, but with a twist where you uh, you understand the kind of the cybersecurity issues and then it's not trivial at all there's there's a lot of great lawyers who are non-technical and in fact there's a majority i think again not to not to to and i'd probably be shot down for it but you know lawyers are notoriously not very much technically technically savvy and so yeah. the intersection between between legal and technology is is key and is is has great value to to uh, to organization, right? Oh yeah, it, it, there's there's no doubt, a absolutely. And 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 I do want to make a, a quick plug then too, because you know you, you you really touched on something I think really really important here. And and when I had you know when we get further down the road, you know I'd, I had been running my own law firm, um, you know for a number of years, and then made the decision to move over to to Kroll and Mooring. And the, the reason for that was in, in very, very large part, and I had a bunch of offers and opportunities elsewhere, was because uh, within Kroll & Mooring, uh, we do have other technical lawyers that, that have a very, very similar uh, skill set that are cut from the same kind of ragged piece of cloth. That the, the first person with whom I had interviewed at, at Kroll & Mooring was uh, Evan Wolf, who had a very similar background to me and was you know, a couple of years my, my senior. But, you know, heavily involved in encryption back in the 90s and sort of maintained that same type of attitude. And we just immediately gelled. It felt like it was a really, really good fit. And what we can accomplish for our clients, having a, both a technical understanding as well as a, an understanding of the legal regimes applicable, is, is something that um, I think is, is nothing short of extraordinary. You know, whether we're dealing with incident response, whether we're dealing with the creation of proactive information security policies, acquisition and and ingestion of threat intelligence, you know, understanding the technology at a fundamental level is is really, really critical. And I think nowhere is it more critical to have lawyers that understand the technology when you're in the throes of an incident. 
because yep. the last thing you want is is somebody who doesn't really understand what's happening or the implications of a certain move or or what the uh, what the results of, of let's say a forensic examination actually do show because you have to understand the technology to understand the legal implications of those particular findings. And so, but to go back to, um, you know, the story and the, and the trajectory here, you know, from, from college to David, I had, had then gone to law school and, uh, and that was where I had uh, really branched out and found myself doing quite a few things that I had uh, never anticipated myself uh, doing as, as a 15 year old hacker. <laughs> so, so, you know, I, I, I guess I'm in a, in a sense contrarian um, by nature. And one of the things that happened in, in I went to law school in Vermont, at Vermont Law School, and this was back in the days of the uh, of the don't ask, don't tell policy with, with respect to having gay persons in the military. Mm-hmm. And my law school um, protested the don't ask, don't tell policy by refusing to allow the U.S. military to recruit on campus, to refusing to allow uh, JAG officers to come on campus. But yet students still wanted to go and, and meet with the JAG officers. And uh, I appreciated the stance of the law school. I did not like the policy of don't ask, don't tell myself. But I did feel as if the law school was foreclosing and cutting off opportunities of its students prematurely without giving them the opportunity to, to make that decision themselves. But the recruiters still came to campus, to Vermont Law School, which wound up being, you know, I think quite a, a fertile source of applicants for uh, the U.S. military and the, and the Army JAG in particular. And I remember uh, I went and met and had an interview just for the hell of it. I figured it was going to be a, a practice interview with the Army JAG Corps. And I met with uh, a woman who was a major who was gay and we had this extraordinary uh, interview where I, you know, I told, told her about my background and technology and whatnot. And I wound up getting this internship to be a one L or first year summer <laughs> internship from, you know. from a test interview. Yeah, it was, it was really funny. I mean, I, I really was just doing it for practice. I figured it was, you know, it was like, uh, you know practice a target shooting or something like that, you know, and, uh, but it wound up being such a great uh, experience too. I got this, this coveted interview, uh, in, internship with the, the army JAG Corps. And that really opened up my eyes and showed me that the world was not nearly as black and white as I had thought it was when I was a 15 year old hacker. And I had, um, uh, worked for, the uh, JAG or the Office of the Judge Advocate General, and in particular, I was working for a, a one-star general, Brigadier General Scott Black, for the Army JAG that that particular summer, and we wound up becoming uh, very good friends, close colleagues. He was then elevated to the TJAG position a couple of years later, so he got his second star and became the Judge Advocate General of the Army. And I believe that General Black was one of the only. Uh, T-Jags to receive a, a third star. So he retired as a major general, lives in Las Vegas these days. And whenever I head over to DEFCON and Black Hat, uh, we always make it a point to get together and, and have probably far too many beers with each other and, and, and catch up over the last couple of years. I'm really looking forward to, to our next session. Alex, what an amazing story it is. You know, it's amazing. It shows you that sometimes, um, you know, opportunities present themselves because you just take actions. And, and do it you know you yeah. look one thing led to another and you built yourself this amazing network and amazing experiences by just going out there and, and giving it a try 
you, you know, gotta go out we, there and you have to have an open mind. <clears throat> and part of it, I believe, is you know, this that's part of what being a hacker is, is having this open mind, right? Being being receptive to new ideas, not shutting them down because it just happens to be the the army jag or the US military. And and that was such a great stepping stone for me because I had um you know, and a lot of what, what I'm doing today goes back to you know this particular time period in my life because that had opened up the door for me where I had uh in my second year of law school, uh, was also then a research associate at Dartmouth College's Institute for Security Technology Studies. So I, I, I leveraged what I did with the Army, applied for this internship, kind of research associate position with the technical analysis group of the Institute for Security Technology Studies at Dartmouth, which was you know, about a half an hour away from where I was uh, going to law school in Vermont. And in fact, I used to sneak into the Dartmouth Library anyhow to do my studying because I, uh, it was too social for me in Vermont. People would come and talk to me and I just wanted to be left alone and, and study. And so I would, I would sneak in. I was sort of an interloper with the undergrads at Dartmouth. But then I wound up working there and having access to the library anyhow. But uh, a funny thing about that was another uh, person with whom I was working at uh, the Institute for Security Technology Studies, which was a, a federally funded uh, counterterrorism and cybersecurity think tank. And remember, this is shortly after 9/11. This is in uh, 2003, 2004. Uh, one of the one of the people with whom I was working, uh, who was an undergrad at the time, was a, a very precocious student by the name of Welton Chang. And Welton was ROTC. He was ROTC. Uh, he wound up going into the army after um, after Dartmouth, and and then doing a stint, I believe, with uh, Defense Intelligence Agency. Wound up getting his PhD at, I believe it was UPenn, uh, and he became the chief technology officer of Human Rights First. And then we reconnected over the pandemic, 17, 18 years later, uh, and you know really hit it off. We had this this shared uh, experience working together at ISTS, and and with Welton, I became one of the founding members of the technology advisory board for Human Rights First, and and have helped them spin off this. Um, very interesting private sector endeavor called Pira, which is tracking extremist activity uh, on, in the global DNS on uh, the basis of data that I'm helping provide them, uh, as well as in all these different forums, uh, Gab, Parler, lots of different chat boards and things with respect to, you know, anti-Semitism, uh, you know, white nationalism, any kind of um, right wing type of extremism uh, and nationalism as well. So really interesting, uh, you know, how it all goes back to this formative time where if I didn't have this open mind, I wouldn't have these opportunities 17, 18 years later uh, as well. And then that was all open source, uh, unclassified intelligence work that we were doing in the technical analysis group at uh, the Institute for Security Technology Studies at Dartmouth. And uh, then I wound up uh, the, the next year uh, working in a place where I never really would have expected to, to be working when I was a, a young uh, hacker. And that was in the general counsel's office at the Central Intelligence Agency at the CIA. And that was a, a, a very coveted position. It was a, it was a bizarre process to, to go through and, and interview and be flown down to CIA and meet with these people for several rounds of interviews and then get the offer, accept the offer, and then have to acquire TSSCI or top secret clearance with access to sensitive compartmented information and go through the lifestyle polygraph. And um, one of the one one of the components of the polygraph deals with the misuse of information technology, 
And I say former hacker that gave I know me a little bit going. Yeah, that gave me slight slight consternation during during that 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 portion of it. And I was uh, I was called back for a second round of of polygraphs. Um, well, you obviously were truthful. I was truthful. Yeah, I was I was truthful. Um, I I will also say too. I mean, the polygraphs is an it's an interesting thing. I feel like it's. It's more about being used as an interrogation device than perhaps gauging the truthfulness of your statements. But it is, I think, effective at gauging truthfulness of your, sta of your statements to a certain extent. And you have to mm -hmm. believe in the, the efficacy of, of the technology in order, and they have to trick you into that belief, I think. Um, and it is very easy for them to trick you into that belief, depending upon how skeptical or, or not skeptical you may be. But, um, but in any event, after, after that, I thought, oh, my God, there's no way I'm getting a, a, a TSSCI. And I, I literally started interviewing with other places. Thing, I got to figure out what I'm going to do with myself. Uh, but I wound up getting it. I, I was truthful. Um, I'd also lived overseas before that. So that you know, contacts with foreign nationals were a bit of an, an issue, too. That took a long time. But look, I think, you know, uh, sunlight is the best disinfectant for these types of things. It's truthful and um and then, you know, that was great, wound up being a stepping stone. But I wound up um, after law school uh, clerking with the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. For My judge then became the chief judge of that court in my second year of clerking. And then I'd gone to Steptoe and Johnson down in, uh, in D.C. I was there for about um, nine or ten months uh, before I took a leave of absence to do another law degree. I was accepted to... Uh, the BCL program, which is a, a very um, exclusive, you know, some will call it a prestigious law degree that that Oxford awards to um, outstanding students from common law backgrounds. And I wound up being the, the only American student on the BCL program. I accepted the offer. Uh, I, so I was uh, I matriculated with Oxford in 2007 and I had finished the BCL in 2008. I was at uh, New College, Oxford. I finished that degree and came back to the New York office of Steptown Johnson, where, you know, back then, you know, it, it's funny, too, because, uh, you know, I was part of the telecom internet media group, you know, working ostensibly on data security and privacy issues. But back then, there really wasn't enough work to keep somebody busy. So I wound up doing a lot of litigation. I wound up doing a lot of appellate work. I worked a lot on um, insurance defense litigation. When I was a very young associate in the D.C. office, uh, my first case was about uh, washing machine inlet hoses that broke and whether or not that constituted an occurrence under certain insurance policies. I got to go when, to. When was this? Terrible. How, uh, yeah. Why? This sounds exciting. You know, washing oh, yeah. machine that malfunction. It's like <laughs> yeah, totally right. like it within your wheelhouse. But I'll tell you, too, it's, it, it, it was pretty boring stuff you know uh -huh. you could convince yourself of that anything is interesting if you're a good enough lawyer right you have to even convince yourself delude yourself into thinking <laughs> that this is this is fascinating but understanding how insurance uh, uh, works and, and how occurrences work under the policy and having this weird thing of having you know insurance but no coverage uh wound, wound up again being extraordinarily relevant to my career as a cybersecurity lawyer because cyber liability and helping insurance companies both craft policy language as well as ex exceptions and helping our clients acquire and understand cyber liability insurance policies is is uh something i do quite a bit and so that's so interesting so there were similarities in terms of that you know defense work that you've done um for uh you know for washing machines you know in the kind of the policy realm um with that was there similarities to the cybersecurity policies today 
Yeah, I, ab absolutely. Because wow. at the time, you know, we were we were representing the insurers. You know, I believe you know my one of my first cases was for St. Paul's uh, Travelers Insurance Company, and um, and so that you know the litigation was pretty complicated and really got into the the technical details of these insurance policies. And then my next really big case wound up being um, uh, an international arbitration about. Uh, uh, reinsurance and reinsurance is also something that's in incredibly relevant and interesting. Uh, I think when it comes to cyber liability, because cyber liability is very often these blocks of business are passed back to reinsurance companies to reinsure, you know, the primary insurers and understanding what is within those blocks of business from a liability standpoint, uh, both a, a technical and legal liability standpoint is can be very, very helpful to those companies and in particular those reinsurers to determine whether they want to keep those blocks of business uh, on their on their books going in going to the future. Because as we all know, you know, there could be these cascading information security issues. But so, yeah, the, all, all of this background, you know, part, part of what you have to do is, is make sure that you're leveraging the knowledge that you have in the past to, to keep yourself relevant. Yeah. And it's amazing because, as you mentioned back in the day, there was not much in terms of the cybersecurity policies and so on. But things have really changed. And let's jump into that for a bit, you know. Just recently, uh, I was reading that um, insurance companies are not no longer are covering ransomware payouts, for example. Right. Um, let's talk a bit about that, like the kind of evolution of, of cybersecurity policies in where things are going. So maybe like because you were involved in, in that kind of have seen that the evolution, you know, firsthand. Uh, what's happening in that space? Um, you know, why are. Uh, companies are now well. Cyber insurers are are stepping away from from paying those out. Yeah, well, I I think there's universal recognition, especially when it comes to ransomware, that paying the ransom provides an incentive for threat actors to continually do this over and over and over again. It's a it's a very profitable business model, and and it's evolved and become more sophisticated. Where with affiliates, with ransomware affiliates, or you know, the the threat actors that are performing the initial stage compromises, perhaps uh, establishing some kind of foothold, establishing persistence within a network, and then it's handed off to a separate group, you know, as part of this ransomware as a service ecosystem, where they then go in, utilize that persistence, utilize those credentials that uh, have been harvested and uh, affect a ransomware event. They might make some lateral moves, find the high grade ore and initiate an encryption event, and then the, the proceeds are split on the basis of some kind of uh, illegal contract, some illegal mm -hmm. handshake agreement between these affiliates. And with the evolution of that model comes, I think, the, the very clear recognition that we need to stop this somehow. And, and insurance payments that cover or indemnify payments to a ransomware group are certainly going to be considered um, in the eyes of policymakers as well to be contributing to the problem. And if we need to, if, if we're going to stop ransomware, we do need to come together and try to figure out ways where, you know, through use of both hot and cold backup systems, we can uh, prevent ransomware threat actors from continuing to exploit this as a very profitable business model. And 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 I think the, the evolution, and, and that's been effective to a certain extent. And we can see the, the efficacy of these policy changes in the fact that ransomware threat actors have now evolved to uh, a system of utilizing double extortion. So no longer are they just requiring you to pay for the key to decrypt your data and get back online. But if you have been using some kind of off-premises hot backup to perhaps something um, like rubric, 
which is a, a, an effective backup system that we've seen used in the past. Uh, if, if you have the ability to get out of uh, this ransomware event without paying the keys, then what the threat actors are now doing is saying, well, okay, well, we've exfiltrated your data and we're going to release it publicly if you don't pay us. So that's the double extortion. The first is to get the key back. And the second is, you know, to pay to, to have some kind of proof of deletion of that data. And, and you're taking these threat actors on their word that they are not going to, to publicly post this information. And so encrypting data, high-grade data, uh, high-grade or data at rest becomes all the more important to protect a company or organization from this threat of double extortion as well. Uh, but going back to the insurance policy bit, you know, I, I just think it's part of that recognition that we do need to stop this. Um, and and insurance companies themselves, I think, are putting uh, themselves out there and in, in, in terms of becoming a target of ransomware threat actors for changing this type of policy. The other thing that um, is of note about this, in fact, I wrote uh, an article for CNN, for CNN Opinion, I think it was back in June or so, uh, about this. It was right when the Colonial Pipeline's ransomware payment in Bitcoin was able to be reclaimed, that the, that the federal government was able to seize and reclaim some of that payment. And the argument I made was that when you consider this ransomware as a service ecosystem and you consider that there are initial stage actors, initial stage um, actors who are, are harvesting and compromising credentials as part of this affiliate system, and they know that insurance companies are no longer or going to indemnify they're insured for these payments or they're going to be begin doing this uh, uh, less and less. And they know that there are packs being made between local municipalities and, and companies saying we're not going to pay this ransom. And they know that encryption at rest is becoming more popular and more powerful uh, against the, the threat of double encryption. I'm sorry, double extortion. Uh, all of these things come together, all these policy changes and technology, technological advancements uh, make the fact that there is. Um, going to be a, an initial rush to monetize this initial stage access that these threat actors have, have, have accomplished. And there's going to be a rush to monetize uh, that access through ransomware events. And so what I predicted back in June was that we were going to see more and more ransomware events popping up. They may not yes, all make the and news. That, I noticed that and you were, you know, spot on. Yeah, you know, I think right so. Right on the money, pun intended. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's exactly right. And, uh, you know, and, and we've seen, you know, a lot more ransomware events come in, you know, to, to our firm. We've handled quite a few of them. Um, and then with the with the latest round of vulnerabilities with, um, I don't know what we're calling it lately, either Log4Shell or Log4J, but, you know, we've already seen, you know, ransomware exploitations or reports of ransomware exploitations involving that vulnerability out in the wild. Wow. And that's it's amazing because it's only been, quote unquote, um, you know, released like a couple of weeks ago, at least uh you know, out in the open. So uh, it's amazing that they, you know, they're the, uh, the adversaries, are, they don't, you know, they don't wait, uh, you know, they don't give you a time to, uh, you know, to breathe. They just go right on it. And uh, as you mentioned, that's uh, kind of a service. What about um, insurance companies putting some controls on, uh, on enterprise to, to reduce the policy? Like, just like, you know, like in vehicles where you have, you know, you have certain types of uh, security controls, alarms and so on that would use your, your premium. Is that something that's happening also in the insurer industry as well? Oh, no doubt, no doubt. You, you, you know, a couple of years ago, it, it, was, a, it was incredible to me how um, the, 
how unevolved the the underwriting process was for cyber liability. I mean, a lot of times companies were just being taken on their word. It was a one or two page sheet that you filled out about various controls that you might have in place. Now the underwriting process is, has become a lot more sophisticated, a lot more in depth, um, and things need to be verified. Companies are not just being taken on their word that, uh, you know, that they have certain controls in place or that they are adhering to certain standards. Um, you know, these things are, are being verified. And you also have something happening in the cyber liability insurance world that wasn't happening a couple of years ago as well, which is companies outright declining to cover certain entities or organizations because of the risk inherent to that particular coverage. Um, and and that would have that would have not have, have happened a couple of years ago. So that's a that's a big change. Yeah, so it's almost like somebody with a with a bad track record of driving, having yes. uh, you know some companies are refused to uh, to insure your, and if they are, they're you know the premium is super high. Yeah, right. that that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And you know, it's, uh, having a couple of DUIs on your record or something is not is never good for uh, you know your insurance premiums or speeding tickets, thing, things like that. Yeah, a absolutely. You know, and and that's an interesting point too because I think when it comes to cyber liability insurance there it's not a direct analog with respect to you know let's say a driving record i mean as you know once a bad driver always a bad driver i guess you can take a defensive driving course but companies can get their you know their their ship in a better state they can enhance their cybersecurity posture and um and it'll be interesting to see how the insurance company deals with that the the sort of the evolution of the underwriting process um, when, especially when it comes to small to, to medium-sized enterprises. Mm -hmm.